I have a question? Sure. How question. long is this going to take? It shouldn't take a whole lot longer. Do you think I can get there before 129? Um, probably not. Uh, What's at 129? Well, I had a project to 160. Okay. the wrongful conviction of Brennan Dassey. Over the course of season two, we explore the constitutional errors at the heart of this injustice, the chaos of Kaczynski, and the techniques responsible for determining Brendan's fate. The conversation continues. Welcome to the sixth hour. five years. I've spent hours, days at a time, buried under the weight of the wrongful conviction of a Michigan High School special ed student who had gone to school on February the 27th, 2006, as an innocent 16-year-old kid, only to experience a macabre initiation into adulthood at the hands of local law enforcement when he left as a suspect in one of Wisconsin's most notorious criminal investigations. This profound miscarriage of justice is Brendan's story. So, Ms. Uh, Neerider, of course, your big issue is deference. Um, even if there's a lot that looks like any rational person might have said this was a limited person, the state courts found otherwise. What do we do about that? It did, Your Honor, and may it please the court. Deference, by definition, does not preclude relief. That is what we know from the Supreme Court. Relief is reserved for cases where the application of clearly established law, even where that law is stated in general principles, has been unreasonably misapplied in the state courts, and that's precisely what we see here. On April the 19th, 1995, the people of Oklahoma City, a Bible Belt city of around 450,000 people, were waking to a beautiful spring morning. Around 500 workers had started their day at the Alfred P. Murray Federal Building as parents dropped their young children at the building's daycare centre, America Kids. It was situated on the second floor. This was a formidable building, and it housed nine floors of reinforced concrete. It was a bustling hub of government offices. However, at two minutes past nine that morning, the lives of all Oklahomans were forever altered. You see, a truck alive with 4,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate, sodden by fuel oil, detonated at the front of the building, causing an explosion that would rip through the building's nine levels, completely tearing away the building's north side. Floors collapsed in a concertinaed concrete heap as a massive crater 
opened up to the front of the building. It was literally hell on earth. 759 people were injured that day. 66 of those were young children. 168 people lost their lives. And tragically, 19 of those who died were just babies. The Oklahoma bombing is still regarded as one of the deadliest acts of homegrown terrorism. And Oklahoma City would never be the same again. The terrorist responsible, Timothy McVeigh, committed many monstrous acts that day. But the evil he wrought would also result in the knee-jerk legislation and widely considered one of the worst statutes ever passed into law, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which effectively eviscerated the federal writ of habeas corpus. Otherwise known as EDPA, the wall that this legislation built reduced the Great Writ to, in many cases, nothing more than a cursory glance at a defendant's fundamental constitutional right to protection against unlawful and indefinite imprisonment. So how does this horrific day in US history come to impact Brendan Dassey's fight for justice? Now, we remember that Brendan's conviction was overturned off the back of his successful habeas petition by Judge William E. Duffin and continued to be successful in his pursuit of justice in an oral argument at the Seventh Circuit in February of 2017. However, with the granting of an en banc hearing, a rarity in itself, it signalled there was a split in the circuit court judge's ideology and interpretation. Sadly, with Edpa crippling the Dassey argument, Brendan's conviction was erroneously reinstated by a 4-3 majority. So what is Edpa and how did it impact Brendan? And importantly, could Brendan circumnavigate Edpa in the future? In this episode, joining the sixth hour is Professor Brandon Garrett a leading scholar of criminal justice outcomes, evidence and constitutional rights. Professor Garrett's work has been widely cited by courts, including the US Supreme Court, lower federal courts, state Supreme Courts, and even courts in other countries, such as the Supreme Courts of Canada and Israel. Professor Garrett frequently speaks about criminal justice matters before legislative and policy-making bodies groups of practicing lawyers, law enforcement, and to local and national media. And I welcome him today. The conversation continues. Professor Brandon Garrett teaches law at the Duke University School of Law, where he has been the Neil Williams Junior Professor of Law since 2018. Professor Garrett also directs the Centre for Science and Justice at Duke Law, which conducts 
empirical criminal justice research and is a leading scholar of criminal justice outcomes, evidence and constitutional rights. Professor Garrett also supported Brendan Dassey's federal and US Supreme Court petitions as an amici curiae, firstly alongside the Juvenile Law Centre and Wicklander Zalowski at the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and as a party to a brief of amici curiae of professors of criminal law, criminal procedure and constitutional law for Brendan's Supreme Court petition for writ of certiorari. Welcome to the sixth hour, Professor Garrett. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're a widely published author of five books and a litany of peer-reviewed articles, book chapters, essays, book reviews, and you've been called upon to give expert testimony in front of the UN, the House Judiciary Committees, and so much more. Your current research and teaching interests focus on forensic science, eyewitness identification, corporate crime, constitutional rights and habeas corpus, and criminal justice policy. Yes, let's not leave out habeas corpus. And a sixth book that I've written is not a general audience book like my new book on forensic science. It's a case book on habeas corpus because it's a class that I teach. And I've written a teaching book. We call them case books in the U.S., walking through all the different aspects of post-conviction remedies in the United States. So you've recently taught courses, including the Federal Habeas Corpus and Amicus Lab, which leads perfectly into the focus of our discussion today. Yes, yes. My first question to you is, is why law? Why criminal law? What brought you to, to this place in your academic career? I was a civil rights lawyer, and so I was not practicing criminal law, but I went into that work wanting to basically sue police and prosecutors. I saw the criminal legal system as the source of the greatest injustices in the United States. I had done poverty work and worked with homeless people before going to law school, and my clients were always being arrested. This was in the era of stop and frisk in New York City, and I was you know, doing poverty work in New York City. And so really, I, I was pretty sure what I wanted to do when I went to law school. I wanted to be a civil rights trial lawyer and sue police and prosecutors. That ended up not being what I did. I, I did that work for a few years, and I loved it and decided that I would be a happier, more productive person as an academic as opposed to a, a civil litigator. But, you know, in my early work, I was suing police and police brutality cases. Police brutality issues have not gone away in this country, and it's something I still work on. But I also represented people who had been wrongly convicted and who had been exonerated by DNA evidence. I was working with Peter Neufeld and Barry Sheck, who co-founded the Innocence Project at their civil rights firm. And so I, you know, I got to know people who had falsely confessed and who had been wrongly implicated by forensic evidence or who had been misidentified by eyewitnesses, and, and I represented them in their civil cases. And that was, that was really eye-opening work for me, and it was a big part of what I resolved to do when I became an academic was to, to study wrongful convictions and see what we can, can learn from them. And early on in that work, I was unraveling, you know, what did these people litigate during their appeals and post-conviction and during habeas? With hindsight, we know that they were innocent, but did they raise innocence claims? Did they challenge the confessions or the other central evidence in their cases? And what did judges do? Did judges throw out their petitions saying harmless error, or did they, uh, did the ADPO create an obstacle or other procedural bars? Or uh, did judges even look at the evidence and say, oh, this person's obviously guilty. There's overwhelming evidence of guilt. You know, I was especially interested in that time period before they got the DNA, before it became pretty clear that they were innocent. 
what do the judges yeah. do with their with their claims then? Yeah, for sure. That's extremely interesting because we see very much so through the exoneration registry and through the Innocence Project itself that people are are exonerated predominantly on DNA, even still. So it, it it's quite interesting to to find how people find justice without DNA being a player in the exoneration. You were joined by Marsha Levick in the Juvenile Law Centre, who I was very fortunate to speak with, and Wickland Zalowski. Again, I, I've spoken with Dave Thompson. Great people. You were joined by them in filing a brief of Amici Curie in support of Brendan Dassey's appeal at Seventh Circuit in late 2016, and again as party to an amicus filed in support of Brendan's Supreme Court review. What perspective were you wanting to bring to the attention of the court? Yeah, so our focus wasn't, was not habeas corpus. Our focus was on how false confessions occur and particularly why youth, why, why juveniles are vulnerable and certainly also people with intellectual disability. And we wanted to highlight how those vulnerabilities are compounded given the interrogation tactics that are far too often standard tactics in the United States and, and, and why Brendan Dassey's confession bears the hallmarks of a contaminated confession. In my work, I've documented how many of almost all of the DNA exonerees who we know falsely confessed with the hindsight benefit of DNA had contaminated confessions. And so where, where the details of the crime had been fed to them intentionally or not by, by law enforcement. And so we wanted to really educate these federal judges about the risk factors concerning wrongful convictions and the research concerning what what can contribute to these false confessions, particularly among young and intellectually disabled people like, like Brandon Dassey. Yeah, absolutely. And as a party to an amicus, is that a process that you initiate and are proactive with? Or is it a case that you're invited to file by advocacy organizations such as the Center on Wrongful Convictions? It can, it can happen any number of ways. I mean, one's decision to to file an amicus brief is one's own, obviously, and you know one is representing the signatories to the brief and preparing it on behalf of all the signatories. When I work on an amicus brief, it's uh, separate from any of the parties to the actual case. You don't, you know, you don't communicate what you're going to write with the parties. Mm. You're not filing on behalf of either side, and neither side gets to see what you're working on or what your what views you express until your your brief is is filed in court. That said, it's common for parties and cases to at least coordinate and say, look, if this case raises false confessions issues, you know, if your group is interested in filing an amicus brief, this is the timing. And if you don't do it by the end of next month, it'll be too late or whatever. And by the way, it won't be duplicative because no one else is doing it that we know of. And so, so sometimes there's coordination like that. That typically really occurs in front of the U.S. Supreme Court where in big cases, there may be 40 briefs filed. And so the parties may sort of say to different groups, like, look, you're the kind of group that might be interested in this. This is the timing. And by the way, another group might be more suited to handling some other issue. And so they may give guidance to potential amici on really just to coordinate so they don't overlap. They don't file the same brief, but of course they can file the same brief if they want. And they're representing, they're representing themselves and not any of the parties. That's so interesting because I'd always wondered whether it was aligning yourself directly with Dassey's team or it was independent of that. 
Yeah, these these briefs are always wholly independent. And that said, you know, our brief in this case was certainly wholly favorable to to Dassey's side. We we thought that this was an extremely troubling interrogation and confession, and we thought that you know the federal court should grant relief to Dassey. Some, sometimes briefs are you know less favorable to any one side. There are some cases where really the perspective is to educate the judge and not address what relief the judge should provide. You know, we recently filed a brief in a bite mark case where we heavily criticized the ruling concerning the bite mark evidence, but expressed no opinion whatsoever about whether the person's conviction should actually be reversed. We were very clear that we didn't want to address that issue and would not address it. We just wanted to inform on the science. In Dassey's case, the two are intertwined, right? The problems that we saw with the interrogation were absolutely problems that we thought undermined the the entire conviction. Yes, yeah. Had you been familiar with the Dassey case before the documentary was released? Yes, not. I hadn't looked at the records closely, mm. but you know the, you know I studied DNA exonerations and I, I knew that in the aftermath of the exoneration that there had been this new prosecution. I think it's apt to say that for millions of people watching the interrogations of Brendan, it's an effective experience. Now, as we know, Brendan had filed a petition for habeas corpus in the federal courts, which was ultimately granted by Judge William Duffin. And that breaking news, a federal judge has overturned the murder conviction of Brendan Dassey. Steve Shamraz is live in the newsroom with this latest news. Shannon and Charles, this is the first domino to fall as the result of the making a murderer phenomenon. That you'll remember is the documentary highlighting perceived flaws in the murder trials of Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. U.S. Magistrate William Duffin issued this 90-some page ruling in just the last hour. He says Brendan Dassey should be released from prison in the next 90 days unless the state of Wisconsin wants to give him a new trial. Dassey was convicted in 2007 for his role in the murder of Teresa Halbach, only 17 years old when he was found guilty, sentenced to life in prison. In the ruling today, Judge Duffin, critical of the investigators, and also of Dassey's attorney. He says Dassey's confession to detectives was coerced and involuntary, and his criminal defense was not adequate. He calls Dassey's conviction, quote, an extreme malfunction in the state criminal justice system. Those are the words of U.S. Magistrate William Duffin in his order today. If you could explain what type of relief habeas corpus grants a petitioner for listeners, perhaps not familiar with the process. Yeah, so... You know, in, in many countries, what habeas corpus is, is, is typically a writ to release people who are detained illegally, normally like before a trial. And it typically was a writ that you'd file against the jailer to have the body produced. The habeas corpus is, you know, produce the body so that the jailer can be accounted. Why are you holding this person? Often it was, you know, you, how could you arrest this person without filing charges? Or those were... The, the typical usages, particularly in the days before people really were sentenced to prison terms, right? You'd be held in the jail for a while and then maybe you get sentenced to death or maybe you get released. In the U.S., habeas corpus has a, a it took on life as a post-conviction remedy. And in many countries, there's just an appeal. When the appeal is done, it's done. Uh, in the U.S., there are separate post-conviction remedies that you can seek to challenge a conviction after your direct appeal is over. Often, those involve claims that can't be brought during the appeal, 
because they involve information that's outside of the trial record. And so most typically those are claims that your lawyer was ineffective for failing to bring out evidence, for example, or make challenges, or they may be claims that prosecutors uh, committed misconduct by concealing evidence from the defense. And so we didn't bring it up at appeal because we didn't know about it during the appeal. This is new evidence that came to light that prosecutors suppressed that police didn't disclose or, or new evidence of innocence claims. And then there are other claims too, but in general, these types of claims involve new evidence that came to light after the appeal and they can be litigated in state court using state post-conviction remedies and federal court. If that doesn't go well in state court, you litigate a federal habeas petition. It has to be a constitutional claim. And so it can't be just an error in the evidence rulings or something like that. So, you know, fairly serious errors. It has to be a serious constitutional violation, fair trial rights, due process rights. And it's not, you know, you're going to a different system, right? You're asking a federal court to overturn a conviction that was already finalized in state court. The federal judge is going to defer to all the rulings and the fact-finding that the state judges have already done because it's already gone through two rounds in state court, right? There's already been an appeal. There's already been state post-conviction typically. And, and so this is like the third bite at the apple when you're filing your federal habeas petition. And that said, often there are claims that really weren't developed in the state courts. And sometimes a, a claim doesn't have to be exhausted if, if there's a, a special excuse for not having done so. Anyway, the federal judge may, will have the trial record. They'll have any records of proceedings that followed during the appeal or state post-conviction. And, you know, actually, in, in, in the typical case, if it's not a death penalty case, the person won't have, necessarily have a lawyer representing them. And so it can be a challenge in figuring out from this handwritten petition, like, what are the claims here? What are we supposed to do with this? And on top of all of that, our topic for today is also the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. It's a federal statute passed in 1996. It's celebrating its 25th anniversary. It sharply restricts the ability of federal judges to grant relief uh, on, on these types of habeas petitions, mostly by, for a number, number of different ways. But one way that it tightens the rules is it says that federal judges really have to defer to uh, the reasonableness of the state judges' rulings when, when they had their crack at the apple and, and denied relief on this person's claims. Yeah, I think it's with Judge Duffin's opinion that for the first time, many people became acquainted with the term EDPA and would sadly become disappointed at its future application as it relates to Brendan. In his 91-page opinion, he makes reference to EDPA in his determination and states, the court does not reach this conclusion lightly. The present decision is made in full appreciation of the limited nature of the habeas remedy under EDPA and mindful of the principles of comity and federalism that restrain federal intervention in this arena. However, the high standard imposed by EDPA is not a complete bar to relief. While the circumstances for relief may be rare, even extraordinary, it's the conclusion of the court that this case represents the sort of extreme malfunction in the state criminal justice system that federal habeas corpus relief exists to correct. Now, the history of the EDPA statute and how it's come to be, and I suppose as the New Yorker aptly wrote in 2015, it has effectively gutted the federal writ of habeas corpus. Can you give us a little bit of information about the background of EDPA? Sure. I mean, you know, it was not easy to win a habeas petition before the EDPA was passed. And actually, some of the things it did was just to codify some tough rules that were already in place. 
That said, those tough rules were largely U.S. Supreme Court made. And so the statute before that really just said if a federal judge finds a constitutional violation, they can grant relief, right? It was just a, a simple cause of action. There was a rule concerning the need to exhaust claims in state court before you bring your federal habeas petition, but that it wasn't set in stone. There was a rule that you can get an evidentiary hearing, but that a judge doesn't have to give you one. Uh, the rules were pretty flexible. And judges do not grant relief every day because it's hard to show a constitutional violation. But that's largely where things stood. The Supreme Court became extremely activist around habeas corpus beginning in the late 70s. You had a much more conservative court. Federalism was the name of the day for them. And they, the idea that you would be reviewing and overturning state criminal judgments was really upsetting to these judges. These justices uh, in particular didn't trust trial judges. They wanted to rein them in. It was really in part a story about the U.S. Supreme Court exercising control over lower court judges. And a lot of it also had to do with the politics of the death penalty. That, you know, the, the Supreme Court brings back the death penalty in 1976. And the, the conservative Supreme Court doesn't want lower federal judges, you know, closely scrutinizing death sentences coming out of the South. As the death sentencing is on the rise again. It's going to be the death penalty cases where there are lawyers representing someone all the way through, and they will typically be bringing the most claims. Death penalty trials, you know, in the way that the Supreme Court brought them back in 76 are double barrel trials where there's a separate sentencing trials. So there's just more opportunity for errors to be made. And so, you know, in, in a whole series of rulings in the beginning in the late 70s, going through the 80s, the Supreme Court creates one procedural obstacle after another that really ramps up the difficulty of bringing a habeas petition. They say that you have to exhaust every single claim in your petition. If there's one unexhausted claim, it must either be dismissed or the whole thing must be stayed. They say they create a new doctrine of procedural default, that if you haven't properly vetted a claim before a state court, that it's defaulted with narrow exceptions. They say that new rules of constitutional interpretation defined not very clearly cannot be brought up for the first time in a habeas petition. So there's this whole series of doctrines and the EDPA codifies them and adds even more teeth to them. And some of those old doctrines persist because the Supreme Court then says, well, both rules apply, the tough rules that we made up and the ones that Congress made up. And so it becomes, it just becomes this thorny, thorny mess to figure out what to even do with a habeas petition. It creates horrible problems for federal judges because even if a case is like the claims are, are patently meritless, it actually takes them a long time to figure out the proper way that they're supposed to dismiss it because the Supreme Court gave these marching orders to the, to the trial judges saying, no, 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 you can't ju jump to the merits of the claim. First, you must address whether everything was properly exhausted. Then you must address you know, procedural default or the statute of limitations or this or that. So you have to jump through all these hoops to decide what to do with a habeas petition uh, rather than just look at the simple question, okay, constitutional claim, was the constitution violated or not? But the, you know, in practice, actually, some of the more obscure pieces of the EDPA matter a lot more than the ones that have gotten the most attention. There's a one-year statute of limitations, which is much more complicated than that sounds because it's told in, in all kinds of confusing different ways. Like the clock really can't be running while you're doing things in state court, but there's the appeal, there's state post-conviction. What if the state allows you to file a second state post-conviction petition? How about the time that the state Supreme Court is deciding what to do with your petition? Like, how do you decide what to do with the clock? The, the statute of limitations doesn't say. A lot of cases get dismissed based on that. But I think the piece of the app that gets the most focus is 2254D, which is this part that deals with a limitation on relief on the merits. And 
basically, you know, I think what people find it upsetting for the same reason there's a big debate in the United States about qualified immunity right now. The idea that your constitutional rights are violated, but you don't get relief. And that said, the Supreme Court had also erected doctrines around harmless error that did the same thing. It makes it harder to get relief, even if your constitutional rights were violated at a trial. And, and those, those doctrines still exist. But the EPA added something new to that even, which said that it's not about whether the error, error was harmful at your trial. Harmless error doctrine, which the Supreme Court added teeth to for federal habeas purposes in the Brecht case, already did that. What this rule says is, well, your rights were violated, but was the, was the state judge unreasonable based on existing Supreme Court law? Or did they rule in a way that was contrary to existing Supreme Court law? And they, the idea is, well, you know, when, when the state court denied relief on your claim, maybe they got it wrong, but they have to get it like a little bit extra wrong. And that's, that is an odd position so to put federal judges in the position of saying, you know what, you didn't just get it wrong, you got it really wrong. And that's what they have to do in order to allow the claim to go forward and to potentially give relief to someone. It's an uncomfortable position to put judges in. Uh, the language of the statute isn't particularly clear. And it gives judges just kind of a lot of discretion to say, I don't know how bad a constitutional violation was this. And of course, often what they're looking at is a state court ruling, which itself may be very brief, may not really explain its reasons. So how do you know whether the state judges are unreasonable or not? You, it's, it's just it's your, your gut as to what their gut was. And so it's, you know, part of the reason why it's, it's really not, it was never that common to have a habeas petition granted, and it's, it's less common now. Yeah, I read that many historians believe that President Clinton at the time knew that EDPA was not going to affect terrorism, but would certainly impact the civil liberties of everyone who felt they had some type of constitutional claim in terms of due process. Well, when it was passed, it was also passed, right? It was passed in, as part of death penalty politics, right? You had Timothy McVeigh, huge domestic terrorism incident, the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, it was passed in a rushed fashion after that bombing. And the concern was like, okay, if we have these terrorists, if we have these high profile death penalty cases, we don't want them filing habeas petitions frivolously and having these cases sitting in federal court forever. We want to promptly carry out federal executions in horrible instances like this Oklahoma City terror bombing. And that said, the statute actually, like, it doesn't apply just to death penalty cases. There's some death penalty specific provisions which have never kicked in. Uh, it applies to all federal habeas corpus. And it doesn't necessarily do things to speed things up. Actually, it makes the job of federal judges a lot harder because they have to review all these complicated procedural questions to figure out what to do with a habeas petition. And so, you know, it was uh, the language. It's just a poorly drafted statute. A lot of the words really don't make sense. They don't refer to existing standards of review, or if they do, they're mashed up with other words that come from other areas of the law. And so, you know, it was kind of bad drafting, a rushed process, drafted in the heat of the moment after this horrible terrorism incident. And, and you even had people signing it. Like the, when President Clinton signed it, he said, you know, this doesn't change the... Uh, the ability of federal judges to actually, you know, you know, rule on people's constitutional rights. It's just going to, you know, make things more efficient. Some of the other signatories seem to have said, thought that too, that, oh, this just, you know, it just changes some of the standards, tightens some screws. But, you know, federal judges still have their independent duty to do their job. That's not obviously how the Supreme Court has interpreted the statute, and that has not been its effect. And instead, we've had federal judges, you know, both Judges who have a reputation for being conservative, judges who have a reputation for being less conservative, saying, no, we can't do our jobs. And we have a statute telling us that we can't properly review 
constitutional violations that we have identified as being constitutional violations. That that cuts into the job of an Article Three judge to to uh, uphold the Constitution. Yeah, I think it was passed in a show of bipartisanship, ninety-one to eight in the Senate, and ninety-three to one hundred and thirty-three in the House. So it was certainly a popular legislation at the time, and it. Yeah, and like, yeah, like like a lot of things with habeas, it was kind of technical and truly understood. You know, some some people assigned it said, "Oh yes, finally we're going to fast track executions and get rid of these frivolous prisoner challenges." And others who signed it thought, "Oh, this is just you know, it's going to make things a little more efficient in federal court, but it's it's not going to actually hurt people's rights. You know, constitutional rights. You know, they, they'll they'll always be protected by the federal judges after all." Yeah, and they didn't have anyone to testify for habeas corpus. And I, for a layperson such as myself, the idea of effective death penalty act in a title of something is quite shocking. It was also the timing was also interesting because uh, my last book, End of Its Rope, talked about the decline of death sentencing in the United States. And little did they know that death sentencing was about to free fall, that the late 1990s were the peak of American death sentencing. And every year since, death sentencing has basically declined to a tiny fraction of what we had in the late 1990s. Back then, there were 300 plus death sentences a year. But support for and the practice of the death penalty has eroded so quickly that, you know, we're lucky if we have 30, 40 death sentences in a given year. Most of those death sentences continue to get reversed, mostly on appeal in state courts due to the EDPA, not in federal courts. But, you know, they were caught up in the heat of the death penalty, which was actually actually in the throes of its really its last gasp. Sort of the last draw of the American death penalty was when they passed the statute, but it's faded every year since. Yeah. Do you think with federal judges obviously paying strict deference to state court decisions, what of habeas corpus is left, particularly for those with claims of wrongful conviction? Well, actually, there are quite a few exceptions in the doctrine for claims of innocence or for situations in which there is evidence of actual innocence. So some of these procedural bars can all be excused if there's, if there's new evidence of innocence. And, and the, the, the EDPA doesn't apply if there are these excused type situations. So normally there's deference to the state court ruling. The state court can't have ruled on a claim if it wasn't brought in state court. And so, you know, the, the sort of the loophole that sometimes works is if you have new evidence. So you didn't have it at the time you brought your state court, you know, post-conviction motion or whatever. The state court didn't rule on it. The EDPA therefore doesn't apply because the state court didn't rule on it. Normally, though, you have a separate problem. You're procedurally barred from bringing up something new that you didn't exhaust in the state courts. But if you have an excuse, uh, such as a strong showing of, of actual innocence, then you can bring that excused claim and it's exempt from the ADPA. Still doesn't mean it's easy and it's going to be a clear winner in federal court, but, but there are some situations where the ADPA doesn't apply. And innocence is one of the, uh, the main such exceptions. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I mean, Laura Narida has said that EDPA is a draconian law that kept Brendan Dassey behind bars. How did EDPA affect Brendan's pathway to relief? Well, obviously, like you mentioned, it, it was not seen as an insurmountable obstacle by the federal district judge who said that although there is serious deference under the EDPA, if there's a powerful enough constitutional violation, you can absolutely get relief. 
And, and, you know, the Supreme Court has said that, that, you know, you defer to reasonable state judges, but that doesn't mean it's blanket deference. That doesn't call for blanket deference. It just calls for some deference, some degree of deference. Uh, but some deference is in the eye of the beholder. And, you know, the, uh, the appellate judges up in, in the Seventh Circuit disagreed and said, well, no, you know, in our view that this falls within the, the gray area in which there is some deference and some deference is enough to deny relief on this claim, even though the trial judge thought that um, that even given some deference, this is a winning claim. And we've seen that happen time and time again, that innocence, strength of constitutional claims are in the eye of the beholder. Uh, it's deeply embarrassing to the federal judiciary to have different competing panels of judges all voting completely differently about the evidence. I think one of the most stunning examples is in the case of Paul House, where the, in the case of House v. Bell, we had multiple competing panels saying that he is actually innocent, release him right now, there's some evidence of his innocence, so the procedural issues can be excused and the EDPA doesn't apply and that kind of thing, versus, no, there's no credible evidence of his innocence. He's a guilty dude, deny relief. And, you know, Chief Justice Roberts wrote a dissenting opinion when the Supreme Court said that he passed through the innocence gateway based on some evidence of innocence and said, oh, there's just clear evidence of his guilt. This is just laughable. Well, DNA testing later confirmed his innocence. But so many different judges along the way had completely different opinions of what the evidence looked like. And we've seen that time and time again, that one judge will say overwhelming evidence of guilt and another one will say clear miscarriage of justice. And of course, they're reading a paper trial record. They weren't there at the trial. They have no way to assess the credibility of the witnesses. They are not the jurors. They are conscious of that. They know they can't substitute their judgment for the jurors. They're reluctant to do so. It's very hard to sort of replay a trial in your head, but with the benefit of new evidence. And it's just, it's a... It's, I'm just not even sure that we can count on judges to handle that role. We may need to have other innocence inquiry institutions, but even apart from the challenges of just assessing guilt and innocence with benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of new evidence, judges are often quite reluctant to reopen criminal cases, particularly in serious criminal cases. And one piece of it is also having to do with the diversity of the bench. Most federal judges, if they have a criminal background, it's because they were prosecutors. And uh, very few have a public defense background. Very few have represented people on the receiving end of constitutional violations from police and prosecutors. So they, they just will, just based on their background and experience, will, will not tend to view such claims as, as particularly credible because they haven't seen them happen to their own clients. They've never done that kind of practice. I mean, the EDPA, you know, obviously is restrictive, but the wildly differing interpretations of it yes. by the federal yes. judiciary makes it even more so. We saw that split, a definitive split in Brendan's on bunk decision of 4-3. On one hand, you had Judge Wood writing in the dissent that the majority justify this travesty of justice as something compelled by the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. And then you have Judge Hamilton and the en banc deferring to the state court's decision with ease. What were your thoughts on the Seventh Circuit Court's en banc decision and the Supreme Court's decision to not hear Brendan Dassey's case? It, it's, it's always a totally unpredictable what cases the Supreme Court will take on certiorari, and they take so few cases. But the en banc ruling did elevate the profile of the case. And certainly I was hopeful that the Supreme Court step in. I wasn't necessarily confident the Supreme Court would do the right thing. Uh, the Supreme Court has 
has never been good in cases involving coercive interrogations. You know, the Supreme Court has been responsible over decades for really eroding the voluntariness of the circumstances and the other constitutional tests. The Supreme Court has been very hostile to what limited protection Miranda ever provided and has eroded Miranda in every possible way. And so I, I was actually quite deeply concerned about what would happen if the Supreme Court did accept the case, that Brendan Dassey's case might actually end up making harmful law for, you know, the country. <laughs> and so that didn't happen. But you know, I think the, the, the unbanked decision highlighted again just what radically different conclusions smart federal judges can, can reach about evidence and about constitutional claims. And it's not just an EDPA problem. It's a problem that ranges across federal habeas corpus. It's, it's certainly a reason why we can't count on judges years later to unravel wrongful convictions. We need front-end protections to avert the kind of coercive interrogation and abusive methods that were used to secure Brendan Dassey's false confession. But, but it also means we have to think really carefully about serious habeas reform. You know, my, my view is that the EDPA is, is not the only problem. You know, the U.S. Supreme Court had been imposing some pretty draconian rules even before the EDPA. The EDPA was sort of the culmination, but we, we need to do something about some of these court-made rules. And they all reflect this mindset that finality is all that matters and that federal judges should basically abstain from policing the Constitution when someone's been convicted in state court. And given what we know about wrongful convictions now, that's just a really antiquated view. Uh, and hopefully we'll get law reform that addresses it. Yeah, absolutely. So where to now? How to repeal EDPA as defendants' rights continue to be diminished? Yeah. What happens to petitioners like Brendan in a federal system that's limited almost to nothing more than a cursory glance? If there's any silver lining, the, the failure of the federal courts to effectively redress miscarriages of justice in, in this country has put more pressure on the states. And there's been at least some limited reform. Many more states have passed innocence-related exceptions to finality rules. Some of them have just been focused on DNA testing. Others have been focused on changed forensic science. And so, you know, one avenue is to focus more on states and, and push for reform, whether it's hopefully broader than just writs of innocence, but also a more meaningful look at a whole, whole range of constitutional violations. And that's, you know, state, state post-conviction remedies have been notoriously thin, but they could be far more effective and, and, and far more beneficial to people than having to wait to get to federal court. Federal reform could come out of Congress. And, and I actually see some hope there because you know, we're, we're having really powerful debates right now about policing in this country. There's much more recognition that criminal cases can go wrong, whether it's just an arrest or a police use of force or a conviction. And in that context, people are talking about qualified immunity reform which would take legislation, but it's, it's about the Supreme Court creating rules that make it hard for a judge you know, to remedy a constitutional violation when they find one. And just like in Brendan Dassey's case, just like in federal habeas petitions, it's not every day that a federal judge sees a constitutional violation when police use force. Fourth Amendment claims are not easy to win. But the fact that even if the judge finds that your Fourth Amendment rights are violated, that a police officer can have qualified immunity on top of that, it's really the same posture as the judge says, yeah, your constitutional rights were violated and you were convicted, 
but the state judge was reasonable when they denied you relief. And so I can't do anything about it. It's, it's exactly the same situation. It makes it very difficult for a federal judge to do their constitutional job. We're not talking about opening the floodgates to frivolous claims. It's not easy to win a constitutional claim. And so, I, you know, there's been a lot of bipartisan support for qualified immunity reform and several states have already passed their own qualified immunity abolition statutes. I, I, I see this issue of reforming habeas corpus, bringing back more of the remedy as being straightforward and very much, hopefully, the kind of thing that would receive that type of bipartisan support. Just let federal judges be judges like they used to and grant relief only when there's a serious constitutional violation, but, but allow them to do that. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate giving your time and your insight today. Oh, it was a treat. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for everything that you're doing. And I look forward to hearing the episode someday. habeas corpus issues come from death penalty cases. Even less come from terrorist cases. Yet this bill is not limited either to death penalty cases or to terrorist cases. It is depriving every single American, every single child, every single one of us of our constitutional protections of habeas corpus.